Everybody's getting quiet. I guess that's an <laughs> implicit kind of uh, way to say, hey, get started. Um, well, let's pray and we'll, we'll start. It's a little early, but that's okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we're so thankful that you've brought us here uh, to worship you, uh, to hear from you, to be with you. Lord, be with me now and, and all of us here as we investigate what it means to be um, close to you and how you've come close to us. God, may I decrease and you increase, and may that be our prayer for all of us. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, some of you I know quite well. Some of you I don't know at all. Uh, you may not know me. I'm Jay Gardner. I work with the youth here in junior high. Um, so this is our third week in this series on how the gospel is everything for your child. I think the title kind of presupposes that you might be a parent, but by no means do you have to be a parent to stay here um, or, or plan to be a parent or anything like that. This hopefully will apply to you no matter what. Uh, from what I understand, the last two weeks have been really good. You had Cameron and Sarah. You're kind of getting the B team this week, so I hope uh, you still feel like you get your money's worth. Um, I'm not a self-proclaimed expert. In fact, I'm not even a parent. Um, I have a dog. That <laughs> doesn't count, though. I don't let people count that. In fact, I refuse. My mom's here. I refuse to let her call my dog her grandchild. Uh, something's wrong with that. Uh, so Maddie, my dog, calls me Mr. J, not Dad. Uh, Anywho, um, enough of that. Oh, I, I do work with you, so I mean, maybe I have some, some level of um, knowledge on, on kids, but honestly, uh, I, I don't want to admit that. I want to just say, you know what, I'm in the same boat as anybody else. I, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out what, what this life's about and what we're doing. Um, but yeah, the title for this class is, um, well, I think the, I, I didn't entitle it, but I think it's The Gospel and Intimacy. You know, how, how the gospel is everything for your kid, and then subtitle, Gospel and Intimacy. Definitely not language I would have used. Intimacy is kind of a funky word. It kind of gets adopted to be sort of an erotic, romantic kind of thing. So that's definitely not where we're going if that's where you thought this was going. <laughs> I'm more inclined to use words like fellowship or community or communion. Um, anyways, it's funny. I was just teaching a Bible study this week. I teach uh, two or three Bible studies a week typically. And this particular curriculum we were using this past week had the prompt to ask the kids, uh, what do you think the biggest problem in the world is? Which is, oh my goodness, uh, what are they going to say? And, of course, it's so funny because kids are trained in a church context to use certain answers. I, I, trust me, if we're at school and you ask that kind of question, they say things like global warming or pollution or war. But being in a church setting, in a Bible study, what's the first thing they said? They said sin. The biggest problem in the world is sin. I'm like, well, you're right, absolutely. Um, but I know you wouldn't say that in, in your class uh, at school or you know, if you're getting interviewed for college, um, you probably wouldn't say that unless you were going to a Christian college perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree. Sin is the biggest problem, but that's so vague. I mean, what does that mean? Um, I want to investigate a problem today uh, that's certainly a subset of sin. I want to look at the problem of loneliness, uh, the problem of our identity in community, and how we feel completely fragmented in our culture. You probably haven't heard. You may have. I don't know how well read you are in philosophy. I'm not very well read, but um, Zygmunt Bauman is a Polish philosopher. He talks about our culture being liquid. That's this term, liquid modernity or liquid culture. And what he means by that is um, culture and society and, and our, our very so social structures are constantly in flux. They're moving. There's no set, um, solid, uh, dependable structure or community anymore. Um, things are moving. You think about our global society, people moving jobs uh, based on markets. Uh, people aren't necessarily located where their families are, where their friends are uh, as, as you might would have expected in, in ancient times or even, you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago. People, people move based on various factors. 
So liquid, the idea that culture is moving. Uh, you can't depend, you can't hang your hat um, on any one given structure or um, community. And gosh, that's a buzzword, isn't it? Community? Have y'all seen that word out and about? Where, where are some places you, you see that word? I'd just like to hear. Let me throw out a few ideas. Church, totally. And that's on every billboard now for churches. We have community, authentic community, um, whatever that means. What else? So church, totally. Online? Is that? Yeah, that's a big one. We'll, we'll talk about that a bit. Anything else? What about like a community garden? You'll see this. There's a bunch of those popping up. I think of like Avondale, these, these, these places in, in Birmingham where people are kind of moving and want to create a community. Uh, which I think is a good instinct, uh, and, and I don't want to criticize any of that. I don't, I don't belong there, but um, I think we're all longing for community. I, I think our culture has put the thumb on what's really the problem. We're lonely. Uh, and, and going back to this Internet idea, or on the web, and we're always connected, aren't we? We're always connected to the point where we're never connected. Uh, I don't know what it is about Little Donkey, but every time I go to Little Donkey, everybody's on their phone. Uh, we saw a family of four, I don't know, a couple months ago, and all four of them were on their phone. That's not an indictment. You can use your phones at restaurants. We do that too. But we, we try to be conscious of not doing that because in the name of always being connected, you're not connected to the people who are around you. Um, I, I just think it's kind of ironic. And then another time too, it looked like maybe a young married couple. I don't, I don't know. Same thing. Just to, to, to. And you know, I saw a funny post yesterday by John, I think it was yesterday, John Zoll. I don't know if anybody saw this, but restaurants, this review of this restaurant in New York. Um, and people are complaining how it took so long to, to go through the dining experience. So they looked at old tapes from, I don't know, 10 years ago, and they tracked what was going on. What, what's taken so long is people are taking pictures of their food, they're tweeting their friends, they're Instagramming it. So the whole experience is, uh, you know, elongated by an hour. There's nothing that the restaurants are doing. It's because the, the consumers are too absorbed into what's, you know, right there in front of them. Uh, well, right in front of their screen, not in front of their plate or amongst their friends and family. So you, you get the point. I mean, we're always, we're always plugged in, whether it be through social media, or, or whatever we're doing. And, and what it really does is it, it makes us lonely. It makes us lonelier than we, we thought we would have been. Um, I mean, I tell myself, oh, I get on Facebook, I'm not going to feel lonely. And that, I feel more lonely I get on Facebook. Uh, and I feel worthless, too, because people put their best on Facebook. They don't put their worst. They project a self that's really better than who they are and definitely better than me. Um, so it just, it just cycles into more loneliness because I feel like, gosh, I don't belong. I, I can't be with these people. Um, we're constantly... I use that word again, fragmented. We're, we're becoming fragmented, uh, and we're creating that reality ourselves. And uh, kids feel it intensely. I think kids feel it supremely. We as adults, we can kind of hide behind our planners, our schedules, or whatever. Someone invites us, up, well, I'm busy. But kids, I mean, they have really nothing else going on unless they're involved in sports or whatever. But you think about school, I mean, their whole reality is social. Um, I think about the lunchroom as a junior high uh, child and, like, the, the anxiety of who I'm going to sit with, you know, Jay, sit with me, or I see these people I want to sit with and they're not inviting me. I mean, kids are, are constantly bombarded with, do I fit in? Uh, do these people know me? Do I know them? Uh, another example is, you know, being out at the kickball a lot, and being, picking teams. You know, I'm team captain, you're team captain, and people are anxious about who's going to pick whom. And oftentimes, I've noticed this at, at the Advent, you know, playing soccer on a Sunday, people choose people based on who they know. Sometimes it's skill-based, you know, you see the tall kid, you want him, but most of the time they'll pass up the skill player because they know someone else, they feel comfortable with that person. So, again, I, I think we're all longing for community. I hate using that word, but you know what I mean, because uh, it's such a buzzword. I, I must be like the anti-hipster. I don't know what it is, but when a word is popular, I just I feel like I refuse to use it. Um, enough about me. Anyways, uh, kids feel it intensely. And so 
all this, you know, Avondale and social media. I shouldn't dog on Avondale so much, but uh, especially if you live there. I hope none of you live there uh, for that reason. But there's a reaction to create a community, to create authentic relationships, uh, whether it be at church or out and about, community gardens, uh, sports teams. I think about applying for college. When I've, I've been out of school now for a few years, I'm, I'm a master's student now, but in undergrad, uh, one of the big draws to where I went was um, a, a school experience where I, I was really getting an education. I wasn't so much centered on community. I feel like my generation and the generation that is now is completely different. I think people are looking for a college experience where they're on campus, they have campus life, Greek life, uh, that sort of thing. And so our college, Paige and I went to UAH, which is in Huntsville, a uh, super nerdy scientist kind of school. Uh, their publications have changed dramatically. We look at billboards you know, from a few years ago, it's, it's rockets and the moon and earth and you know, space stuff, and now it's like a bunch of people holding hands, <laughs> uh, which is so funny. And, you know, Paige's little brother goes there now, and they've completely changed. I mean, they have way more Greek, um, you know, structured buildings for, for fraternities and sororities. They have uh, way more clubs. The sports teams are really getting pushed. Homecoming, I mean, my goodness, I've seen Facebook, everybody's involved in homecoming. When we were there, it's like the dorkiest thing you could do is be at homecoming. <laughs> uh, so my point is, even in the last five, six, seven years, I mean, there's been a shift from identifying ourselves by what we do as opposed to identifying ourselves with who we're with. Uh, and so the college experience, seminaries the same way. I mean, everyone's shifting to online classes, and then there's been a counter move to say, we don't do online classes. Beeson doesn't do online classes. We want a community. That's a lot of big talk. Uh, we can say community all day long, but is it a reality? Uh, I don't know. So you see it out there. Everybody's got a proposed solution to the problem of lon loneliness. And, and really, most of the time, it's creating uh, community, authentic relationships. Again, another buzzword, authentic. Um, so I, I want to propose a solution that's maybe against the norm, and you would have expected it. We're in Sunday school. We're at church. Uh, I'm giving you the God answer, as it were, uh, just, like, just like my kids do to me uh, in Bible study. But, yeah, I think the only place we can go is, is God. Um, and what I mean by that is God's very being. His very being. So I want to reflect a little. By the way, I'm awful at time management. I was talking before uh, class about how Mississippi State did not manage the clock well yesterday. I relate to that very much so. We could go way under, we could go way over. Um, so I guess if it gets close, just give me a little finger and you know, I'll, I'll know what's up. Or, you know, you may get out 20 minutes early. Who knows? Um, but God's very being, God's very being is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we refer to God, we don't just say God. I mean, we can. I think implicitly you and I know who we're talking about being at the Advent. We say God. You probably assume that I'm talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you're out on the streets, if you say God, it can mean anything, right? God can mean the ground of being. Uh, it's a very philosophical term. It can mean the, the all-encompassing all, uh, sort of a, an Eastern idea, Eastern idea. So who is God? What is God like? Um, God is not a force, just a wisp of air that's out there. Um, he's not that ground of being. I mean, he is in, in one sense, but in another, we need to be more specific on how we clarify who God is. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to reflect on that language for a moment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such odd language to think about God being three and one, one and three. I mean, you, you're probably familiar with the Trinitarian uh, grammar. But as we think more about it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's so otherworldly to think that God could be relating to us on those, on those you know, filial terms, Father and Son in particular. Uh, that's where we're really going to start. So the thing that comes to my mind is when we pray to God or we think about God, we're not relating to an it. We're relating to a thou 
or a you. When we pray, we don't pray to something as if it were a force. When you pray, I mean, you're expecting to be heard, right? You're expecting to be heard. You're expecting to be responded to. Um, you're not expecting the, the reality to shift in some weird force-like way, uh, like Star Wars or something. You're, playing, you're praying to a personality, a person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That seems so easy to just let it pass us by. We pray it all the time. It's in the prayer book. It's in the Bible. Um, and you could easily pass it by, but stop for a moment and really think, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how bizarre, how unique, how weird, but how beautiful. So we're praying to a thou as opposed to an it. So we can't relate to Buddhism or maybe even Hinduism. I'm not an expert in religions, but I think about the way those structures are, are kind of formed. You know, in Buddhism, your personality is sort of a, it's sort of a, 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 sh- a sham. It's a fake. I mean, you, you really don't have a personality. Your whole goal is to become less and less of yourself and become more and more of reality, whatever that means. Uh, and again, not an expert. So Eastern religions really focus on lo- kind of losing ourselves into everything and nothing at the same time. Um, Hinduism is kind of similar from what I understand. And I think on the opposite side of the spectrum, I think of maybe Islam, where God is kind of personal, but golly, I'm afraid of him. Oh, whatever he's, whatever Allah, I guess is his name. I'm, I'm afraid. I mean, you look at this is so reductionistic, but if you look at what's going on in the Middle East, I mean, I'm wearing the little uh, the pin today that some of you may have. I mean, it's controlled by fear and anxiety, and again, that sense of control. So it seems to predicate upon God that He's frightful and controlling. So you've got the spectrum of God as not being a personality, all the way to God being a personality. Where does Christianity fit? Um, well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is personal, and he is distant in a certain way, but he's, he's highlighted that personal point. And a text that comes to my mind, the text of the Bible, that's so hyperbolic, you could go to any text almost and say the text, but the text where I, I really want to you know, hang my hat and call today is John 1.14. Don't, you don't have to turn there, that's not what we're going to focus, but the Word became flesh, the distant became close, the God became human. How fascinating. So Trinity, we can't get away from that language. We can't, we can't throw that out. We can't throw away Trinitarian ideas of who God is. If we do that, we lose God. We lose the Christian God. We lose the one true God. Uh, we can't just simply call God, God, unless we're on that understanding that you know who I'm talking about. Some other imagery in the Bible for, for God and his kind of relationship to, to us, uh, I think about the shepherd and sheep kind of motif. Um, you're probably familiar with that. And I don't know a lot about shepherds. I hear you know they have to be really close to their flock, and uh, they have to lead by example as opposed to drive, and all these sorts of things. But I think it's it's a beautiful image that God is, through the metaphors of language, has decided to identify Himself in this one way as shepherd and sheep. I mean that's intimate, that's personal, that's close. Another one. This one's kind of for you guys out here. This one kind of this one might make you shake a little. But uh, God is our bridegroom, and we're the bride. And of course, that's on a communal level. That's I'm not the bride individually, neither or any of you, men or women. But that's another, langu- uh, another metaphor that God uses for his relationship with us. That's another personal, intimate um, description of, of how he relates. The one we're going to look at today is the idea of parent and child, so father and son. Um, maybe it's a quick time to talk about uh, gender language in the Bible. Um, I'll tell you what, before we do that, turn to Romans 8, if you would. And we've got Bibles dispersed throughout. If there aren't enough, please share with your neighbor, or don't. I'm not here to boss you around. Um, but yeah, and I know 
you're probably scared now to get your phone out, but please don't. I know you're using your Bible. I know you're holy and righteous and, and looking up God's Word. No, I, I don't care if you're tweeting right now. Uh, yeah, we're in Romans 8. And we're going to kind of jump around a little, but not much. Uh, I'll read Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, and then we'll jump down to verse 26 and and following. So here we are. Uh, Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave, again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. All right, we'll stop there and we'll, we'll jump to 26 later. All right, I'm sure you've heard this passage. I mean, Romans, um, I, I mentioned this in a Bible study the other day, go big or go home. I mean, if you're, if you're going to do a Bible study, just one, maybe, maybe go to Romans. And, and Romans 8 is a good place to go. I mean, the beginning, therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ. Uh, for those who are in Christ, I mean, that's a big one. That's typically when I think Romans 8, that's where I, I think first. But here we have this sneaky little passage here. Uh, we're talking about an obligation to the law uh, versus grace. I mean, he's been, he's been trying hard, Paul, that is to differentiate between what we do to receive God's grace and how God just simply gives us grace. So we don't do anything to deserve God's grace. And this passage, I think, really points to that in a special way. Um, And you probably know where I'm going to go, but it's talking about how through the Spirit of God, we become sons and daughters of God. Okay, I promised gender language. Um, Yeah, so a common feminist critique of kind of the Bible and Christianity is the masculine uh, pronouns, particularly for God, uh, but all throughout, I mean, it didn't say sons and daughters. I, I put that. It says sons. That's, that's the word. Um, but that word can, can hold a little more. But father, father and son, referring to, you know, God and, and Jesus. They're both God. God the Father and God the Son. Um, that gets tricky for some people. And we think about the way that manhood and masculinity has really um, it's been a, a power, a, a right to power, to strong, a stronghold over others, to abuse uh, and we see that, again, not, not cherry-picking uh, things from other cultures, but I think of Islam in particular. Uh, women have no rights, or at least very, very, very little. And Christianity is, has reflected that some, too. So the critique is, why can't we call God mother? Uh, why did he have to be a man? And I think if you look through Scripture, there are definitely images of God being more motherly. Think about um, the, the chick with its, or the, the hen with its chicks. That, that's an image that's used. Uh, the nurturing kind of aspect of God. But the very language of the Bible doesn't, doesn't allow us to say mother in the way that we would want to. Uh, a very popular, well, I should say, shouldn't say popular, but a very prominent uh, feminist theologian, Sarah Coakley, I don't know if you've heard that name, uh, her most recent systematic theology, um, she talks about how if we change the language to mother for God, we're actually doing what, what the masculine tendency is, to, to powerfully change something. She says implicitly when you do that, you're kind of, you're kind of giving way to misogynism because you're, you're taking that masculine role of, of powering over the text of what's given. She says, look, I mean, it's, it's not always comfortable, but I can pray Father comfortably um, because I know that God is not male or female. Uh, that's just the language the Bible has given us. So if you're uncomfortable with that, sometimes I am too. Um, 
if you've ever taken a, sort of a women's studies course, especially uh, my brother's in that, that field, so I, I'm, I feel close to that. Uh, Paul's not trying to get at masculinity or malehood, uh, so you can, you can be rest assured of that. Okay, so what is he getting at? The Spirit of God uh, leads us to say that we can call ourselves sons of God. We can cry out, Father, Abba, Father. It makes me think of Jesus, his prayer. We pray it every Sunday, uh, the Lord's Prayer. How does it start? Our Father. Not our it, not our great force, not our ground of being. Our Father, a person, a personality. And we can pray that alongside Jesus. If you look at this passage in Romans 8, uh, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Christ has joined us and willing to call himself our brother, as it were, which is also uncomfortable um, to, to think that God has related so much with us. The Word became flesh just to become our sibling, uh, to die with us, to suffer alongside us, to die for us. We're co-heirs with him by his blood. So Romans 8, like I said, go big or go home. I want to hone in right here and think, wow, it's because of God's very word, his son, and by his spirit that we can say, Abba, Father. All right, we'll read ahead. Romans 8, verses 26 and following. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So we have these two, these two passages here, and, and I hate skipping around, but um, that's, that's just the nature of it. We can't read it all. The first one, relating us to sons and daughters of God. I mean, we, we, we're now in this filial relationship with God by Christ. His relationship with the Father is now given to us. And the second passage, I think, points to another level of intimacy, we think about the Spirit interceding for us, within us, groaning, knowing what we already are thinking, knowing what we should have already prayed. Uh, the Spirit does that for us. That's another level of intimacy. Again, not my word, intimacy, but we're going to stick with it because that's the title of our class. So we have a, a communal aspect where we're all sons and daughters. We also have this very, very personal aspect where the Spirit was, is within us individually and praying with words that we couldn't express. The, the Spirit knows what we should pray, and what the will of the Father is. Um, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've, we've been brought into that very life of God. We're sons and daughters. We're, it's Father, Sons, and Daughters, and Holy Spirit, uh, almost. That sounds blasphemous. Please don't quote me on that. It's on tape. I've already quoted it. Oh, no. Um, I'm, but we're, we're joined into that very life of God. God's given his life to us and for us. And even so much so that when we pray, we're participating in God's very being, his reality. His spirit's in us. That's so mystical. We, Protestants typically don't like to think that way. Um, but here it is. The spirit's praying within us, interceding for us with groans that words cannot express. So the communal aspect, we're a group all together. And then the individual aspect. I think about Holy Communion. This is really the place where the church really shows that and participates in that most of all. You want to talk about community? I say go to a Eucharist service. That's community. Because the whole, the whole premise of a Eucharist service is we bring nothing. There's nothing that we can do to earn a place at the table. It's God's table, and he's graciously invited us. Think about every other community. You've got to pay a fee. Um, you've got to go through initiation. You've got to have the right credentials. Not at Holy Communion. There are no credentials. Just come. 
And I guess the one credential is that Jesus Christ himself came and paid the price and continually pays the price for us and brings us in. So if you want to talk community, I'd say go, go to the communion service. I, I know today was morning prayer, which, again, that's part of our heritage and it's beautiful, but Holy Communion is the church's act in which both the community and the individual are brought into God's very life. God gives himself. Think about the prayer. I think about right before you receive, the prayer is, uh, God, may the, I, I'm going to butcher the language, but that we receive the precious body and blood of your son so that he may dwell in us and, and we in him. Again, how mystical, how bizarre that God would relate to us so much so that we could dwell in him and he in us. And then after the prayer, or after communion rather, the prayer, the post-communion prayer, I believe it says something along the lines of we become mystical members of his corporate body, uh, which makes me think of 1 Corinthians, another metaphor for how God relates to us. We've become the body of Christ. Again, very personal, very intimate. Uh, and, And really quite not just profound, but shocking, that God would relate to human flesh. Again, John 1.14, the Word became flesh. I say this a lot when I, when I preach or teach, but God got his hands dirty. He gets his hands dirty. He comes to us and he relates to us in our filth, in our disgusting sin. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, you'd say the biggest problem in the world is sin. You betcha. And God, he got his hands dirty in it. So the, go- the gospel... Um, is very multifaceted. I think Cameron talked about this. Uh, the culture is real confused, the Christian culture, that is, on what the gospel is. Gospel this, gospel that, gospel coalition, together for the gospel, on and on and on. Not that those are wrong or bad, but uh, that's, a really, that's a buzzword again. I can't get away from using that one. Um, as, as hipster as I might want to be, I've got to use the word gospel. Um, it, it's, it's everywhere. But we need to be very, again, we need to clarify what that means. I think the gospel is like a diamond. It's multifaceted. We can't really pin down one thing about it. But again, it's not everything. The gospel is not everything. People talk about obeying the gospel or living out the gospel. I think we've confused our terms a little bit. We start doing that. But the gospel of intimacy, the good news that God has come close. He's become intimate with us. He's become personal, relational, communal. And he gives himself to us at the, at the communal table. I don't know if you've ever read this book, um, some of you surely have, but uh, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, I mean, I don't need to give too much bio on him, but um, World War II, Nazi Germany, he was a seminary, a teacher, theologian, pastor, um, in charge of assassinating Hitler. That was kind of his thing. That was his job toward the end, and uh, it didn't happen. He got executed before his plan could be carried through, but um, what a great thinker in the 20th century in, in church history. He wrote this book called Life Together, and he talks about the reality of Christian community, the actuality of Christian community. It's not something that we can make or fabricate or, or manipulate or control, which is what we want to do. Um, we want to create a church sign that says authentic church community here and, and do something about it. You know, we have fellowship dinners, and we, uh, we do this, we do that. It's all about what we do, but Bonhoeffer's saying it's not what you do. It's what God's given us. It's a reality. Whether you like it or not, whether you like the way it looks and inevitably, we don't like the way it looks. I mean, think about, think about who you're sitting next to. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I like you all, um, and hopefully you like me. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you like me, because this is our Christian community. God has given us this. It doesn't matter if I like the way you look or the way you talk or the way you like anything I do or anything I've said. This is the reality. God has given us this. We can't manipulate it or control it or change it. It's not an ideal. It's an actuality. And I think the beauty of that is, and just like the gospel, it's not something that we could have predicted and it's not something that we would have necessarily even wanted on the front end. But that's what we've been given. 
And as time goes on and we pray, as in Romans 8, 26 and following, we pray and the, and the Spirit intercedes for us, we, become to, we actually kind of like it. We get to like being amongst all these people that we wouldn't have chosen otherwise. And so I think that's our answer. I think Bonhoeffer's right. I think community God has given us is reality. We can't fake it. We can't make it. It belongs to Christ. And so I think that's our answer because if you think about social media and everything we're talking about earlier, I'm going to get to the, the parenting aspect of it, hopefully. Take that with a grain of salt because, again, I'm not a parent. But all, all these other structures that we choose to participate in, it's usually by our own willingness or the things that we would have wanted. Uh, the kids at junior high saying, sit by me. That's the reality in the community we choose. But God chooses for us. And, and that's why I think of, of Galatians 3:28: neither male nor female, neither free nor slave, neither Jew nor Gentile. We can't base our relationships on those preconceived notions of what it makes us who we are. Our identity is not based on what we do or where we came from or where we're going. Our relationship is based on Christ and what he's done for us and what he's continually doing for us. And that's the intimacy of the gospel. God chose us not by what we did and not by what we do. He invites us solely on based on who he is and his love that he's given to us. So the gospel and intimacy for your kids if you're a parent or for you. It's not the way we would have wanted it. It's not the way we would have thought it would have looked like. But it is the reality. And I think it's coming to terms with that reality. And so instead of getting on Facebook and saying, man, I really want to know what these people are doing, you can still do that. The gospel and, and the church says, this is, this is it. This is your community. This is who you are. Your identity is based in this, not in that, whatever that is for you. So maybe, maybe your son didn't make the soccer team this year. Or maybe your daughter didn't make the dance team. Or maybe you didn't get what you wanted. That's okay. We, we didn't get what we wanted, and we're not going to get what we want. But we're given something way better, and we're learning to like it. And so maybe, maybe your child is upset. Mom, I didn't get chosen. Mom, I didn't, cut, I, didn't cut the, I didn't cut the first cut. I didn't make the first cut. Dad, they really they don't have a place for me. And you can say clearly, well, there is a place for you. It's at God's table. It's at God's table. And as parents, there's a pressure on you guys, I know, and, and, and not even parents, but us, to, to constantly do something, to shape our kids, to form them. Uh, it's a law put on us that we've got to be perfect. Romans 8 says we don't have to be perfect because they're not crying to Jay or, or any of you. They're crying to Abba Father. So you don't have to be that Savior. I think of the Dean's sermon last week. How beautiful of illustration. Giving out the cookies in line at dinner, or after dinner, rather. And he didn't play the part of God. At the very end, you know, who, we all know who it was, if you know his daughters. But uh, the, the third one didn't deserve the cookies or the dessert. And he says, look, I don't deserve it either. Here you go. So that's what we're modeling. So if there's anything we're supposed to do, which I don't want to, I don't want to focus on that. If there's anything we're supposed to do, it's to point to God and His loving kindness and how He's given it to us, given it to us, even though we don't deserve it. Um, so if there's anything you can do in, in trying to be intimate with your children, be close with them, I think it's always pointing to that. I think about my own relationship with the youth and some some of your kids. The most authentic times with them is when I'm not trying to force something. We always have an agenda as youth ministers. You know, we're going to go get ice cream. We're going to play soccer. We're going to do Bible study. And it's always a kind of a means to an end, unfortunately, to get them to come. Jesus doesn't treat us as a means to an end. Uh, God doesn't treat us as a means to an end. And we consequently don't treat him as a means to an end either. We can. And we, I want peace or I want happiness. I want fulfillment. 
But God doesn't bring that. He is that. He is peace. He is happiness. He is fulfillment. He is joy. It's not an extrinsic part of being with him. It's him. It is Jesus Christ. He's the intrinsic good that we've been given. Um, he's not a means to an end. So even though sometimes I treat your kids like means to an end, I don't mean to. I'm just trying to do my job. But my point was saying that my, my most authentic times with them is when I don't treat them like a means to an end. They can see right through it. They know when I'm trying to get them to, to come to some event or something like that. And some of the best times, honestly, are up in Cleveland Commons. We're just waiting for the service, uh, you know, or whatever, the Sunday school to get out if we got out early, and just shooting, shooting the bull with them. They love that. I love that. I love just having nothing... Uh, no agenda to bring to them. And that's where intimacy is, where they're not a means to an end. Um, so the same for you. They can see right through it when you're trying to control and do something uh, instead of just being with them. I, one of my favorite things is when a kid says to me, Jay, I can't make it to Bible study. Mom and Dad really want to go out to eat tonight. I say, well, praise the Lord. That is, that's, where I, that's what I want to happen. I mean, this Bible study should be the best Bible study ever, but uh, I'm just joking. Y'all didn't think that was funny. Uh, but... You're going to eat with your parents, and I think that's, that's more valuable in the long run. And the thing I've noticed in our, in our ministry is the kids that really know the faith, that know the Bible, that have a true living faith, nine times out of ten, maybe nine, 99 times out of hundred, it's because their parents were involved and, and were intimate with them. There's always that one exception to the rule where neither of his or her parents are believers and he or she has a great faith, but most of the time I can predict it. I can see when parents are involved, their kids really grab onto it. Um, and I think most of the time that is because you're not treating them as a means to an end. So if you ever feel that, that tension in you, like I really want my kid to do something, you're treating them as a means to an end. You're wanting them to do something instead of just being with them. So I think about things like family dinners are, are beautiful and so rare these days. Going back to Valmont earlier, you know, liquid society. Even our families are liquid. Uh, we think about things like well, I mean, death. Obviously, death is always a reality. And it's the worst. Um, the worst thing that happens to anyone is, is losing someone. But I think of divorce even. I think of uh, just the norm in our culture for dating and, and relationships is sort of hooking up, moving on, treating people as a means to an end. Uh, and that's, that's the world that our kids are being brought up in. That's the world they see. How countercultural for us as Christians to say, you're not a means to an end. You're an end in yourself. You are worthy because Christ called you worthy. So we should treat them that way. So I'm not putting a law on you. I'm not saying go do this. I'm just saying simply always point back to God's grace and say, I don't deserve it either. I don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be here, but praise be to God, we're here and we're, we're together. All right, well, that's, that's all I've got from my end. I hope maybe you have some questions. Uh, we can open it up as it relates to either the passage. I know I didn't do a beautiful job of bringing out everything here, but um, yeah, any questions? And if you have one, remember, I'm not a parent. I'm not an expert. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe someone can interject and, and be one for me. All right, I'm not going to treat you as a means to an end. I'll take it safely that the Spirit is groaning inwardly for me to end this. Um, so let us pray and um, we'll be dismissed. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that um, you've invited us, you've included us, you've been close to us, not because of what we've done, not because of what we're going to do, Lord, but because of who you are. So Lord, I pray for all these people here, especially parents, and especially those who work with kids and youth and teenagers. Um, be with them, Lord, that they can always point to you and point to the fact that um, 
you've, you've included all of us. You've invited us in virtue of who you are. So God, I pray that special blessing over each one here that, that struggles with how to be a parent or how to be a caretaker or how to be simply a friend. God, may we not be um, people who treat people as means to end, but Lord, may we hold up your gospel and say that you love us all, that um, that's, that's the end in mind, is the community that you've created. So God, be with us now as we go. May, may people go to lunch afterwards and enjoy fellowship. In Christ's name, amen.